Let's pray together and get the class started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance we have again to be together. Pray that you would work in our hearts today, Lord, to convict us where we need conviction, to challenge us where we need to be poked and prodded, and Lord, to encourage us where we may be discouraged and and need some help. The things that we're teaching on, Lord, I pray that you give me the ability to explain them clearly. I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear and hearts that understand and don't get confused by what your word is saying. And I pray for Pastor Steve in the main service that we would be attentive and alert and that your spirit would empower him to teach us great truth. And I pray that tonight, Lord, the church would come back in large numbers. Evening services aren't normally well attended, but Lord, we are having the opportunity to remember your death by celebrating the Lord's table. I pray that you would prod hearts for the importance of this act in the life of the church and in our lives. And I pray that you would bring people back, not just for communion, but certainly for that, but also to hear Pastor Steve and his teaching from Ephesians. Lord, we need your word, and I just pray that you would motivate us to be back. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves again continuing through 1 Peter, and we are in a section of Scripture at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, that we've spent a couple of weeks so far covering. And we're dealing with a transition in the book of 1 Peter, where the writer, Peter was stressing and exhorting in various areas and talking about holy living. I think that's the ultimate overall focus. Be holy as God is holy and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles and all of those important exhortations. But we're starting from here to the end of this letter to deal with the issue of persecution. It's when times are hard, when people are pressing you because of the name of Christ. And while it's the call to be holy, still we'll see over and over and over again, it's the call to be holy even in the context of hardship and persecution. And as I introduce this, I've had a relatively simple outline of this section, but it's for us preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. By and large... There are many believers around the world for which that's a reality. It's not that much of a reality for us. Occasionally, we may get a little bit of pushback. But by and large, we have freedoms and we have protections that many Christians throughout history would not even recognize. But a time could be coming. We're always just a few decisions of the Supreme Court, a few decisions of different things away from a major change in how... The government relates to us because of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be prepared in case that hostility comes to us. So, so far, we've covered four of what I broke this section down to six parts. And so I'm just going to do a quick, brief review. The first way of preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus was to be a zealot for godliness. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Peter was quoting just prior to this from Psalm 34, and the idea is that we're to live in a certain way. We're to live righteously. And in general, even in a fallen world, the rhetorical nature of this question and how he phrased it is such that if we are zealots for godliness, if we are doing good, normally we will not find the trouble that others will find. 
do the things that are in accordance with God's will and scripture. And quite often, some of even the unbelieving hostility will pass you by. Not all of it. That's why there's a message like this in the book. Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's really sort of the clarion call that Peter is making here. Be zealous for what is good. The life of obedience. Second point was embrace the blessings of hostility. Embrace the blessings of hostility. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. While it's a general principle that if you're zealous for godliness, if you're letting your light shine, if you're keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, some persecution might pass you by. He's making it clear, but what if it doesn't? What if it does come your way? What if you've done everything that you're supposed to do and hostility still comes your way for the sake of righteousness? This is another way of saying because of Jesus Christ. He said, you're blessed. That goes back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You're blessed when that happens. Do not fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Don't get worried about their threats. Don't get yourself stirred up in your heart. Live in peace. Consider it joy when trials come your way because even if hostility comes to you because of righteousness, because you are a zealot for godliness, even if that's the case, just remember, you're going to be blessed by that. God's going to reward you for that. That's not something to run from. That's something to say, thank you, Lord. The third way to prepare for a life of hostility because of Jesus is to elevate Christ in your heart daily. Elevate Christ in your heart daily. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Rather than being intimidated or troubled or stirred up or agitated because of hostility coming your way because of Jesus Christ, set apart Christ on the inside. It's really elevating Jesus to the lordship of your heart. Don't fear men, rather reverence and fear the God and master of your soul. This isn't just Jesus as Lord in a theological sense. This is Jesus as Lord in a personal sense. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Again, this is a quick review. The fourth point, preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. Be ready to defend your faith. Be ready to defend your faith. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I don't normally assign homework. I assigned homework last week. I asked you to prepare your testimony. Why is that? Because as I shared with you last week, One of the things I've seen, not as a pastor at Lakeside, but as a Christian since I was saved in 1993, is countless numbers of people who are faithfully attending church that can't give a testimony of their salvation experience. In other words, they can't even say how they're a believer, which means there's no way they can make a defense of the faith. If you can't even explain how you came to know that Jesus is Lord... If you can't explain your repentance and faith, how can you ever make a defense when anyone asks you? 
And the idea here is that someone could ask you at any time. It might be in the context of hostility. It might be in a formal proceeding. It might be under oath. But it could also be from a coworker or a neighbor, just somebody that sees your life and they see hope. They see something different and they say, how come? Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Every single person that names the name of Christ should be able not only to explain that, but explain it in the context of their own hearts. Again, the idea is not of a rote, unthinking answer. It's the reality of this is what happened. I know it. It's true. I'm not going to try and embarrass by asking if you did your homework, but I hope you thought about it. I know several people talked to me that they were at least giving me feedback that they were working on it. And if you had trouble doing it, don't hesitate. Reach out to me. Now, again, not everybody's comfortable speaking in public. I understand that. When I came to faith, it was easier for me to stand up in front of a group like this because I used to do that as a lawyer. So, so I understand not everybody's comfortable. And what is said here is not that every one of us should be able to stand up in front of the class and defend your faith, except that that really is what it says. <laughs> it really is. Everyone that asks you to give an account at any time Again, that's normally going to be one-on-one, but we should be willing to stand up and say, let me tell you. I used the illustration from John MacArthur. I heard him say it so many times in just the seven years I was there. What's discipleship? Find somebody that knows less than you and tell them what you know. Well, every unbeliever that's asking for the hope doesn't know Jesus. Tell them. Or if they know Jesus, they don't understand that you've got to repent of your sins. They don't understand that he died and when he said it is finished, there's nothing for them to do. That we don't work part of the way. Well, Jesus got you this far. Go ahead and pick up the ball and carry it to the finish line. Not at all. So I get a little animated because I want everyone that's hearing my voice to be able to defend their faith. Or to figure out that they don't have faith. So they can repent and believe. As I've shared many times, that's really my testimony for years. I said, of course I believe. Except that I didn't. I believed probably like the demons believed. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. Now, he puts a good caveat at the end of this, yet with gentleness and reverence. The idea here is that we don't walk around fighting people with our faith in pride and arrogance speaking down to them. It's a very unbecoming thing and I've met Christians like this when you look at unbelievers with disdain or you look at unbelievers and you say, thank goodness they're going to hell. They deserve it. No, you should have gentleness in your heart recognizing that God just was merciful to you. Pray for mercy for them. They're created in the image of God. Of course they're sinners. You're a sinner. Now we move into the next part. That's all the review. That, that's sort of get, setting the table for where we are, where we have been. There's a fifth point. Preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. Be a zealot for godliness. Embrace the blessings of hostility. 
Elevate Christ in your heart daily. Be ready to defend your faith. And fifth, live so that your conscience is clear. Live so that your conscience is clear. After verse 15... Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And keep a good conscience. There's a sense in which this is a relatively straightforward command But I want us to think this through a little bit because it's very easy to get off track here if we're not careful and if we're not thinking very clearly and carefully about what is being said. And keep a good conscience. A good conscience has to do with our inner recognition of sin. In other words, I think, after studying this passage, we have a good conscience when we know we have no unconfessed sin in our lives in thought, word, or deed. The Bible speaks often of the concept of a good conscience, of a clear conscience. I'm going to read several scriptures, and these are not exhaustive of the concept. Quite often when you see phraseology like this, you can do a word search if you have Bible software for something like conscience or good conscience, and you can find the exact words that are being used, but often the words used in one place are used In some areas, but the same concept is taught many other ways with synonyms and different words. So I'm going to read a few things, but this isn't exhaustive of what the scripture says about this. In Acts 24, 16. In Acts 24, 16, there's just a statement and Paul's talking. He says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God And before men. It's this idea of knowing I have no unconfessed sin before God or before men, I'm okay. In first Timothy one five. First Timothy one five. He says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Later in 1 Timothy is the requirements or the biblical standards, the character qualities of a deacon in the church are set forth. In 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 9, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 2 Timothy 1, 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience. The way my forefathers did is I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Hebrews thirteen eighteen, 
We saw this pray for us. The author is saying, we don't know who the author was for certain. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So when Peter exhorts us, even in the face of hostility, to keep a good conscience, keep a good conscience is not new, uncharted territory. He's not saying something that people in a church would go, what, what, what's he talking about? Here's why I, I take a deep breath when I come to a passage like this, though. But keep a good conscience. What did I just say? How do we do that? To make sure we have no unconfessed sin in our lives. Sounds simple enough. Yet here's the problem. We still sin. Every single day. And if you don't, please disciple me. So how do we keep a clear conscience? How do we keep a good conscience when we know in our hearts every day we're wrestling with this thing called the flesh that we despise and we hate and yet it rears its head and it seems to make a mockery of our claims on Sunday morning that this week, Lord, it's going to be different. So how do we keep a good conscience well, first, stop sinning. That, that's, that's important. Be holy. But here's also the issue. When we do sin, we have to immediately confess it and repent of it. Now, here's the additional hurdle. And I'll come back to confessing and repenting of it. But I think what I'm about to say is a really big issue in the church. It's a really big issue for us. We need to know when we sin. We need to know when we sin. Now, there's a sense in which I say that and you go, well, of course I know when I sin, except that I don't think so. Because we keep sinning in many ways. Most of us aren't going out with an axe and busting in somebody's door and stealing all their stuff. No, that's a clear sin. But the sin that affects the conscience is often not those outward big sins. It's the inner sin that is corrupting our heart. Sin to which we far too often become blinded and numb. When I'm studying something like this, I think a lot about Jesus' words. In fact, I don't recall any passage of Scripture where I'm not thinking back, did Jesus address this? But in Matthew 5, 21 to 22, Jesus, to me, described a big part of what I'm talking about, but he used it in a particular context. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Yet I have heard countless people in my 20 plus years of being a believer, Christians, faithful church people who harbor bitterness and grudges against Christians from things that happened years ago. They're still angry at church leaders for something that was decided decades ago. They're sinning and they don't even realize it because they feel justified. Well, they really did do something they shouldn't have done. They're angry about it, but not in the righteous sense of hoping they repent. They're angry about it because you offended me. And how dare you? And they carry that around for years and don't realize they're murdering. They don't have a good conscience, but they don't know it. Because they're justified. I know people um, chuckle when I emphasize about certain laws and different things. But I know Christians regularly violate laws and it doesn't prick their conscience in the least. They're not thinking at all about the fact that the violation of the law is rebellion against the governing authorities that God's placed over us. They're not even thinking about it. They think they have a good conscience because they're blinded to the reality that they're sinning when they violate the law. Why? Because they've excused it in their own mind. I know what Joe said about speeding, but look, they don't stop you if you're only five miles over the speed limit. How's that justification? And yet I... I'll never forget driving to church, California, watching the pastor fly by me (laughs) on the freeway. (laughs) Flew by me. I know he had a clear conscience in his mind, but I'm convinced that's a contradiction of Scripture. But Christians don't even think about it. Christians get paid money in cash for their work, and at times they think, oh, that's wonderful, and they don't declare it on their taxes. And I'm not talking about forgetting something. I I filed an amended tax return one time because I forgot to include some income. I'm talking about people that think, oh, this is great. It's in cash. I don't have a record of it. Government will never know. You can't have a good conscience. You think you do, but you don't. But you're blinded. You don't see it. So here's the challenge for us. We're supposed to keep a good conscience. And we do that by not sinning. And if we do sin, we confess our sins. But we also have to ask the Lord to open our eyes and show us the sins that we've become so comfortable with that we don't even recognize them as evil. Again, I'm distinguishing with the fact that some of us will struggle with something our whole adult life. We hate it and we're fighting it every day. Praise the Lord for that. You have to fight it to keep a good conscience. But for far too many believers, we have sins that we aren't even aware of because we're just flowing along with the traffic. Because here's the challenging part of this command. We've got to keep a good conscience, but we've got to be careful never to trust our conscience completely. If we're walking by the Spirit, if we're under the submission of the Spirit, then the conscience is a God-given gift that will alert us when we're running afoul of His standards. 
This is why every believer needs to be immersed in God's word all the time. Because how do you know if your conscience should be violated? You've got to know what God says to do in every area of life. So we listen to our conscience, but we don't ever trust it completely because we have to realize even amongst believers, our hearts can deceive us. Let me say it another way. A lot of unbelievers have a clear conscience in the sense of they're not guilty at all. I've witnessed to someone I'm thinking of in particular where they listened to everything I said and they thought it sounded very orderly and everything, but, but why would God punish me? I'm a good person. They're not as bad as all the other people. That person thought they had a clear conscience. So we've got to be careful and we've got to carefully evaluate ourselves. We have to take an inventory of our hearts. If we want to keep a clear conscience, we have to do the hard examination to say, Lord, reveal to me my heart. Look at every area of our lives. Our thoughts, our words, what we do, hold them up to the light of Scripture and say, Lord, show me where I'm out of balance. Show me where I'm out of step. Show me where when I should have been following the straight path, I've deviated to the right or to the left. This is an internal work of the heart that should result in outward righteousness. As we see sin, we repent of it, we turn away from it, and we walk holy as God is holy. Now, this is imperfect, but from a practical standpoint, I can tell you a good way to start to evaluate and to do that self-inventory because you say to yourself, well, the Bible says keep a good conscience. I want to do that. Let me evaluate where do I stand now. Start with how you speak on a daily basis. Again, I always go back to Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 37. You brood of vipers, how can you be an evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Verse 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. Here's the issue. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If you hear a Christian regularly use profanity, what does that tell you about his heart or her heart? If you see a Christian regularly spouting off in anger, not for the sake of the Lord but for the sake of themselves, what does it say about their heart? If you see a Christian who consistently speaks harshly and gossips and speaks down to other people and slanders, what does it say about the heart? Do you slander other people by speaking falsehood about them? Do you speak badly about other people? Do you gossip about other people? You hear something, you immediately want to share with other people because you know they'll think less of them if you do. Do you speak badly of our government leaders? I don't care what political party they're from. Whether they're Republican or Democrat, they're appointed by the Lord. Do you spend your time just speaking badly about that so-and-so and and I hate them and I hate them? What's in your heart? 
All these things can be evidence that you shouldn't have a clear conscience. Because there's still sin that's filling your heart. Now, I'm giving this strong exhortation about examining ourselves. Then we just know the irregular struggles we have. Forget the hidden sins. I know the struggle of the regular sins that I've been fighting against. And and now all of a sudden it looks kind of sad. Glad I came to church today. It is a dark picture. But this is what's wonderful is there is hope. It's not all dark. I pray that your heart may have been pricked if to look and if you know you're sinning to realize I can't have a good conscience and keep doing this. Here's the hope. You can have a good conscience right now, today. How? By confessing your sin to God and asking for His grace to stop it. Turn away from it. One of the most comforting, amongst many comforting verses in the Bible is 1 John 1, 9. If you don't memorize it, memorize it. Again, if you're the person that doesn't sin, you don't need to memorize it. But for the rest of us, memorize this verse. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, verse 8 speaks to those who don't sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But that's another story at another time. But if you today confess your sins to the Lord, he is faithful, meaning he promised. He didn't go back on his words. He'll forgive you those sins because they were already paid for on the cross. And he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We can have hope, but we have to think rightly. Here's the other half of a good conscience that's a challenge. Some of us feel guilty when we shouldn't. I don't want you to raise your hands. But when all of this talk about Kavanaugh's gone around, I couldn't help but think back to my time in college. And think about what could be said about me. And the things that I know are true. Not in a criminal sense, other than, I guess it was in a criminal sense, underage drinking, drunkenness. I'm thankful that I didn't sin as badly as I could have, but I sinned horribly. And if you're like me, even 30 plus years later, you feel bad. You feel guilty. Because you know you are guilty. And it doesn't have to be 30 years ago. It can be after you were saved. Where you blew it so badly you can't comprehend it. 
when you feel like David, who not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he murdered to cover it up. And you feel like at any moment, the Lord could throw back the curtain and say, you are that man, you are that woman. That's when we have to remember that Jesus knew all of that and he died for you anyway. And that for all the guilt that is rightly due you, you're right, it was horrible, you are guilty, you don't have to feel condemned. Because of, in English, three words, it is finished. The debt is paid. If you have repented and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is now no condemnation for you. And when your conscience from long ago rears its head and it's really Satan tempting you to despair and telling you of the guilt within, you can remember it is finished. It's possible to keep a good conscience. It's hard work, but you can do it. And God makes a way for us. So you can see the challenge for us. We've got to make sure that we feel guilty when we should feel guilty because we're so easy and quick to cover over sins and think it's no big deal. Then we've got to stop feeling guilty for all the things we feel guilty for that have already been confessed and repented of. And then in between, we're supposed to live holy and that's awful hard to do. But it's possible. That's why Jesus sent a helper, the Holy Spirit. That's why God gives us his word. That's why God gives you places like Lakeside with a faithful man like Pastor Steve, who has been the pastor teacher since 1981. And Sunday morning and Sunday night, he stands up and tells you how to live because he tells you what's in Scripture. So you can have a good conscience. You can keep a good conscience. Now, Peter makes it clear the purpose of having a good conscience. And keep a good conscience so that, here's the reason, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Here's the idea. If you maintain a good conscience, as hard as that is, putting aside false guilt... And uncovering real sin for which you should feel guilty up to the point when you repent and confess it to the Lord. At which point the guilt's taken away. If you do that, then when hostility comes for the sake of Jesus, because of Jesus, because you name the name of Christ, you'll be in a position of strength, not a position of weakness. The reality is... Even though there seem to be these paradoxes or the dichotomy, normally if you're a zealot for doing good, people aren't going to hurt you. And yet, by the same token, there are some who are going to revile your good behavior in Christ. 
In other words, if you're being a zealot for godliness, if you're living holy, if you're trying your hardest to conform your life on a daily basis in every facet to what the scriptures say, it's going to annoy people. And rather than acknowledge that your life is a source of good and you're doing good things, they're going to slander you and say you're doing bad things. So the picture is that while we can have clear consciences and we can live holy lives and we should, the fact remains that some in this world will be enraged by this and they will slander us and attack us. So Peter is telling us how to deal with this circumstance. Godliness can draw accusations against us, but if we persevere in doing good, the outcome doesn't have to be bad, even though harm would be a blessing. He says, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In other words, our godly behavior, our clear consciences will vindicate us. And will show that the accusations are slander, not truth. Placed together, we're evangelizing the lost in two key areas as part of our own preparation for living in hostile times. We're giving a verbal, reasoned defense of our faith, always being ready. But also, we're giving a defense of our faith by how we live. They're accusing us, but when they look more closely and it's held up to the light, we're innocent. I'm not telling you anything earth-shattering when I tell you that godly living makes no sense to sinners. I mean, they don't understand the message that we believe first and foremost. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Yet those are the people we have to be ready to make a defense to. But it's foolishness unless the Lord illuminates their hearts. And we see this more and more, particularly as more people claiming to be Christians modify their beliefs, they modify what the scriptures say, they change their standards, they change the rules of conduct. People wonder, why don't you just go along like they are? They say they're Christians, they're fine with it, why aren't you? It's interesting, 1 Peter is going to address this issue in a little bit more graphic way. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Again, Peter's exhorting the same types of things, but he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. In other words, they're just wondering, we're having a good time, why aren't you joining us? Particularly as they look around and they see Christian entity, Christian institutions, people naming the name of Christ that say, sure, that's fine. Sure, go ahead. Sex outside of marriage, no problem. Homosexual behavior, sure, and knock yourself out. A man claiming to be a woman, a woman claiming to man, of course, good, good for you. Using profanity, there are pastors that are using profanities in sermons. Hey, that's just got to be part of the crew. Not at Lakeside, of course, but it's not uncommon. 
The world's just surprised. Why aren't you joining us? What's wrong with you people? Again, we're not supposed to hate those people. We're supposed to love them. We want them to come to the faith. We can't become so enraged by their slandering of us that we attempt to lash out or attack them. We just quietly keep living our godly lives with a clear conscience, confessing sin when we see it. And we trust the Lord. It's interesting, Peter's already told us some people may come to faith because of that. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so the things in which they slander you as evildoers, this is the exact same scenario, they may because of your good deeds, that's how you're going to have a clear conscience, a good conscience, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, some are eventually going to come to faith. Again, others will be dealt with by God. Back to 1 Peter 4. And all this, they are surprised you do not run with them into the same excesses or dissipation and they malign you. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're not getting away with it. So the ultimate point, live so that your conscience is clear. You just praise God that he saved you. Praise God that you think about the things for which you're guilty, that you're no longer guilty. That the slate is wiped clean. That when Jesus said it is finished, it's not now you do the rest of the work, it's over. And when, despite your desires, you do stumble and sin, immediately confess it. Because God is faithful and righteous not to hold it over your heads, not to tell you how dare you, not to make you jump through hoops, but he's faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the ultimate source of a good conscience. So let me encourage you. Settle your accounts with the Lord. It's Timely and in God's providence. I didn't plan it this way. We have communion tonight. We're always supposed to make sure that we don't come to the communion table in an unworthy manner, which just means to make sure we don't have unconfessed sins. And then when you have confessed them, believe that Christ has paid for them. And don't allow genuine past guilt for which Christ died and for which the debt has been paid to hobble you and force you to live under a cloud because that's not how the Lord sees you. Let me close our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We fall so far short, Lord, and yet you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we do get blinded to sin and we do need you to reveal it to us. But perhaps even more so, many believers still feel guilt. And it's almost incomprehensible to believe there's nothing we have to do to work off our guilt. The debt has been paid. Our guilt has been dealt with. Lord, help us to remember if we truly know you, if we're truly your child, help us to remember and rejoice and take comfort in the fact that there's no condemnation by you of us.
Lord, we want to live better. We don't want to keep sinning. Pray that you would help us with that. Help us keep a good conscience. So when hard times come and we're accused, we can have a clear conscience. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.